1: You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and the sound that London is making on this week's episode is the sound of catastrophe and mayhem. I'd say you want to be coming at this episode in a fairly upbeat frame of mind, because the audio coming your way is apocalyptic in nature. There's a little bit of confectionery towards the end, but mostly it's doom and disaster. In fact, I'd suggest that if you're very impressionable, or suffering from a depressive condition, or prone to anxiety disorders, this almost certainly isn't the episode for you. I'm really not sure what a healthy interest in seeing London reduced to smouldering ruins would look like, but if that's where you're at, then, oh boy, are you in the right place. Since civilization is about to fall, a quick shout-out while there's still time to Liam Laws. Many thanks for your help on the recent taxi episode. I'm too sure, but for yet another great idea. More of the same, finally, to Richard Patterson all the way over in Alberta in Canada. If you've got an idea for a show, get in touch, why don't you? We're at Londonist Sound on Twitter. The briefest of emails or a quick tweet could be all it takes to get us into a pickle of the sort you're about to hear.
2: Hey baby, let me take you down so we'll play some strange sights and the sound.
0: You ain't never seen the light before, just a through from your front door. Uh, in the bowels of Westminster Station And we're on the move with the morning rush hour commuters Up the escalators with the crowd With a throng of humanity And uh, from that throng I have selected Rob Smith From right Footprints of London Hi there Hi, why are we starting on an escalator in Westminster Station?
2: Well, this is a special place uh, Today we'll be talking about dysfunctional London Dystopian London And uh, stories where London gets destroyed And uh, this place really reminds me of the description of London in H.G. Wells' 1910 book, The Sleeper Awakes. Uh, This is about a man who's uh, fallen asleep in the Victorian period and woken up in 2200, and he travels around London. And at one point in the book, he's shocked as he sees this cavernous space looks up to see walkways, moving walkways, going up and carrying this throng of people, this massive diverse crowd of people he talks about and uh, they're being taken to the surface and on their route they see these flat cinematic screens which project information at them and uh, I just thought HG Wells would be really at home here in uh, the sort of uh, depths here of uh, Westminster Underground Station one of the Jubilee
0: Line stations built in 2000. Well, there's no denying he called it right. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Because, of course, we featured Footprints of London reasonably recently, again with a throng. I think some of these uh, writers that we're talking about uh, in that episode, about Elliot and this week, seem to suffer from a fear of humanity in general.
2: It is very much a warning novel, The Sleeper Awakes, and it raises these uh, fears that we start happening in the Victorian period of the subterranean, uh, that somehow humankind will be split into two species above ground and below ground and H.G. Wells definitely talks about in the time machine Well, that, that happens in the sleeper awakes and uh, the ruling class is all live above ground and we're, we're nearly up the surface now and just above us on the surface is Portcullis House where uh, the MPs, our ruling classes today are.
0: Uh, but presumably our transition uh, that we, we're just about... Made now uh, three sets of escalators. This was an access denied those living below ground.
2: In the story, yeah, definitely, yeah, people stayed behind, below, and worked in underground factories and underground workshops. And uh, it was only for pe- <laughs> uh, people like the sleeper, who were really powerful in the new society,
0: who uh, make it to the surface. So we are the sleeper. <laughs> you know, do, do you think you would naturally have belonged to the ruling class or the underground, well, subterranean sleeper? of underground kind of guy. I underground. <laughs> just coming up for the ticket barriers now and we've got a, a choice of exits and this will determine our route what's the, yeah. the overall scheme for the route
2: well we're going to be looking at novels in which London has been destroyed uh, this is like a constant trope in uh, fiction there are various reasons why novelists would want to destroy London we'll talk about some of that before but it's something that's obsessed me since I was a child reading books like Day of the Triffids and um, I always found those... Oh, we'll go to the
0: left here. Just a quick pause here, I think, is earned by the beauty of the architecture before us, combining with a perfect blue sky. uh, Just enough wind to take the Union flag out at right angles over the Houses of Parliament.
2: Yeah, it's a blast of fresh air after the fetid underground air we've been breathing.
0: But this is presumably highly offensive to your, uh, your preferred taste. You'd like to see this as a smouldering ruin. Uh not at all, no. I, I wonder if we've just put ourselves on a security radar by saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is quite
2: tricky. When I start my walk, London destroyed here. Holding up the sign can be a little bit worrying. Uh, <laughs> I was, recently I was next to a group of Jehovah's Witnesses and I think people thought I might have been part of uh, their crowd. Although I have to say they were rather nice people as well. Destruction of London—it's uh, something that's really fascinated me in uh, fictionally in, since a child. I didn't really find the sort of ghost stories and the horror stories particularly scary. What was really scary was the idea of the world that I knew around me just coming to a stop and uh, changing into a into a non-functioning world. It's essentially when uh, if the city stops running, we're all reduced to. The, you know the state of children really we don't really know how it's going it's going
0: to run how do you look forward to the prospect of a donald trump presidency
2: <laughs> <laughs> well let's hope that that doesn't it doesn't come to force because uh, we may be coming across some of these ideas more closely
0: so the uh, the routes uh, as we head towards westminster bridge the the route uh, that we might be following today is what
2: well what we're going to do is walk along the river which is always a pleasant thing to do on a day like today um and then we're heading towards Leicester Square. Although it's a really n- nice uh, sight here, we're going to be describing it through the eyes of some of the really great science fiction and other uh, fiction writers. So we'll have some really great people to help us out, imagine how the scene could look. Now, luckily, pretty much everything we're going to talk about is fictional. But there is uh, one time when London was actually destroyed. That will be the, uh, related to the person who the statue cr- uh, see across the streets. Um, Rudica, right. who we, uh, when I went to school was known as Bodicea. Yes, what's happened then? Well, this is. She kind of changed her name in
0: the last 50 years.
2: Yeah, this is really, uh, I think, almost a little fashion kind of thing. They, they've tried to go for a more sort of true to the original Celtic pronunciation. but We really don't know how it was pronounced, so uh, i have still. You'll probably find me
0: calling it Bodicea. Uh, what we do know about her is that she is standing on uh, one of those tiny little chariots pulled by a bucking horse. That's a bucking horse. <laughs> yeah, with a very uh, very frightening um,
2: sword's wheels. Um, like something out of a uh, James Bond film where he could uh,
0: slash the opponent's tyres. Well, Boudicca got there first. I forgot about that bit of her uh, mythology. Who's the little fellow behind her? There's a little fellow behind her. Yeah, yeah. um, She's she's standing holding her spear aloft.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of her daughters. Really terrible story. I mean, there's great injustice to uh, Boudicca. Uh, The Romans have said they'll do a power-sharing deal with the Iceni in East Anglia. They they renege on the deal, and then there's a small revolt, and then the Romans repair by raping her daughters in front of her. So Boudicca is pretty angry about this. She... uh, turns on colchester burns that to the ground and then arrives in london Uh, now the uh, roman commander suetonius he's got the choice of trying to defend london with an inadequate amount of troops or leave london to its fate and head north and rally more troops and fight the celts uh, there and that's what he does Uh, so we have an account of the destruction of london uh, from tacitus he's writing about 50 years later but he talks about the celts descending on london and being determined on fire slaughter and the gibbet and uh says that seventy thousand occupants of london are murdered by them uh which is you know an incredible uh thought we don't know of much more detail than from tacitus's account but we do uh no, he writes about saying any able-bodied person escaped the city and those who were unable to, or who were uh, unwilling to, who wanted didn't want to leave their possessions behind, uh, were slaughtered. So it was pretty comprehensive. And they then set about St Albans before then Suetonius returns with an army and Boudicca is defeated. Probably not
0: at King's Cross, as the rumour goes. It's somewhat strange that we have... A statue to her.
2: This is uh, this is London all over. We're so kind to anyone. So many burns the place down. It's someone we can feel as a real hero and uh, as a sign of resistance. Yeah,
0: should we be looking out for the statues to Lefevre. <laughs> it's, it's a bit unusual, isn't it? Mm. Well, let's crack on. Are we going okay, are We uh, walk down the steps yeah. and uh,
2: we'll walk by the river. So this walk is part of a season of walks about London fiction called L- L- Literary Footprints we run running this throughout October and the idea is really to uh, find the places associated with books so we'll be following Sherlock Holmes through the alleyways of uh, Marylebone we'll be uh, following Dickens at night, we'll be going to George Gissing's Netherworld in Clerkenwell we've got a great chance to meet with Emma from Jane Austen and she can give you some tips on living through uh, Jane Austen's eyes did Jane Austen lay waste to London? <laughs> no, she was okay, actually.
0: <laughs> I was just struck by the recollection of, oh, I don't know if film falls within your ambit for this walk, but 28 days later yes, uh, we've that's got a post-apocalyptic right, yeah, yeah, yes, Westminster yeah, yeah, that's Bridge there. a great it?
2: place for it, yeah. Um, there's a really great scene there where they have a bus lying on its side, mm. and that took a lot of difficulty in filming that. You know, it was done at sort of 5am on a summer's morning, and... Uh, Closing off Westminster Bridge—it's not that many times you really want to do that for filming. Although very soon, though, London will be destroyed in film again. They're filming the new Transformers film on Tower Bridge, and it's due to be destroyed. We also had the film last year, London is Falling, which uh, London is Falling, which had uh, uh,
0: Chelsea Bridge blown up. <laughs> That's one of the silliest films I've ever it seen. It was rather. <laughs> Of course, I watched it because I was curious about it.
2: I watched it, but it was more of a sort of video game on film rather than a film, but it was fun.
0: Now, I can't remember who to attribute the quote to, but I thought it was kind of wry. They said that in disaster movies, uh, the first thing to be destroyed are the landmarks, but in post apocalyptic films, the only things remaining are the landmarks.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, that's a good point. Destroying the landmarks is very key, to, even in, in fiction. It's a way of sort of saying to the reader, giving them a real sort of shock factor, the idea of sort of buildings they will definitely know have suddenly disappeared is a, is a sort of real wake up call. And that's something we'll talk about just over here. This is, we'll talk about Richard Doyle's book, 2002 book, Flood.
0: Just here, being, we've just emerged from behind some kiosks there, and the bright sunshine has resumed the london eye is there in its morning splendor well that sounds indecent i shouldn't use that phrase. I?
2: <laughs> so uh floods are always a, danger Sorry, that was to a london. terrible
0: line to feed you in on.
2: <laughs> flood's always a real danger to london so you've got areas like westminster where we're standing was really marshy ground lambeth is potentially flooded for a long time in london history and uh 1928, there's some really very severe floods in London. A surge tide comes along, floods Fulham, and people are trapped inside their basements and drown. Uh, The flood's so rapid. And then in 1953, we have uh, the huge surge tide, which lays waste to Canby Island. Luckily, London's not too badly affected there. Most of the energy's dissipated by then, but it is a real wake-up call, and that's when we get the Thames Barrier built. But in uh, Richard Doyle's book... He comes up with the idea of a maximum possible accident where there's a surge tide and then a t- an oil tanker is swept into Canby Island and there's a huge explosion sending burning oil to the centre of London. And uh, it's a frighteningly plausible book because you can see that he's really done a lot of research with sort of London's emergency plans and I think you can all imagine... You know how difficult it would be to escape in all the traffic that there would be generating London in that kind of disaster and how difficult it would be to escape in a hurry. Uh, so there's a very comprehensive destruction of London in the book. Uh, but I'll, I'll just read you a section that's written about where we're standing now. The riverside of Whitehall from Trafalgar Square to Westminster is a mass of flames. The MOD's roof has fallen in, releasing showers of multicoloured sparks. Fires lick around Portcullis House by Westminster Station. Liquid glass from the windows streams down the marble facade like giant tears. Across Westminster Square in the Abbey, the Archdeacon listens to the steady drip of molten lead from the ancient roof. The square itself is a war zone of sunken vehicles and burnt out or shattered equipment. And then we switch the action to a helicopter near the London Eye where some people are trapped on it. Seb snatches a final glimpse of the wheel through the hatch. Fire has weakened the last cable. The remaining leg shears, and 2,000 tonnes of steel crashes forwards into the river. Through the smoke pools, Seb has a momentary vision of snapping cables and glass capsules descending amid a ruin of flame before a veil of darkness falls. On the bridge, someone screams a warning. Fire Commander Rakes jerks round to see a black wall twice his own height coming towards him. 2,000 tonnes of steel partly dropping from a height of 100 metres as the impact of an earthquake jolt. Rakes has a single second on which to grab hold of a crawler tractor before a tidal wave of oil-borne water swamps Westminster Bridge. Now, the idea of the London Eye catching fire and then falling into the river its a pretty uh, powerful image. I think that's what Doyle really wants to do. It's a shock factor book. And Doyle has a, an argument uh, that he's, he's really worried about sort of global warming and its effects on sea level and feels that we really need now another uh, Thames barrier further out in the Thames estuary. So the book was really a sort of uh, a worst-case scenario uh, situation of what's happened. Now, uh, that's a really live debate still for London. Do we need this, another barrier? Um, everyone's really confident that the Thames barrier will
0: last us, but it certainly happens to be raised more often than was originally planned. I'm kind of intrigued by the tension between these dramatic depictions of London being destroyed. And I, I just wonder whether one doesn't become inured to the prospect of disaster by repeatedly seeing a city levelled. I wonder whether we're actually able to think about the possibility of damage being done to London in terms other than the cinematic?
2: Well, I have to say, there it is being planned for all the time. There's a, a group called London Resilience, so that's made up of people from the fire brigade, uh, all the local authorities, uh, home office, army, all those people. They're planning for disasters all the time. And there's a what's called the London Risk Register. And uh, they, they're planning for a pandemic where 100,000 people have died. There's a plan for aircraft crashing over the centre of London. Another disaster that's possible is the processionary moth caterpillar infesting London's trees and calling all
0: the branches to fall down on us. So... I, what? It,
2: it, it's, it's a caterpillar.
0: No, I don't trust you. <laughs>
2: it's a caterpillar that threatens moths, London.
0: Moths are going to take over the city.
2: If Apparently if there was an infestation of this moth caterpillar... It would so weaken all the trees around, there would be an epidemic of tr- branches falling on people. And um, also the caterpillar is uh, irritant to skin, so we'd have hundreds of casualties from uh, caterpillar contact. So uh, London Resilience are thinking of everything. Well, certainly are. Have we met this caterpillar? Does he exist? It's, uh, it's a caterpillar that he d- does come across in small cases, but it, if it ever bred in large numbers, it would be a real uh, problem for
0: London. And where does
2: he live? Um, I think they come in from. Um, well, I was going to say Europe now, but this sounds like sort of, You know, oh, well, we better shut the borders yes, to stop these coming in. The but, yeah. I think. I mean, I think they're they're not a native UK species.
0: That's what I mean. Uh, what, and now I'm wondering whether we should even mention this.
2: <laughs> Maybe we should. Don't want to get people to panic. No. But as you as you're saying, it's easy to like say. Well, we're so inured to this, we haven't really even thought of it happening. And uh, this is possibly the case. I mean, when we've had London disasters like 7-7, people did sort of snap into a sort of sense of shock. And perhaps there was a case for giving people a bit more of a drill, more people had uh, first aid lessons and things like that.
0: I wonder if I'm slightly uncomfortable stacking the two against each other. Yeah, 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 sure. It's notable we are standing next to the uh, mural to do with the Blitz, of course.
2: Yeah, and the Blitz was another occasion where London was very close to destruction. In 1940, it's a night in uh, Stepney where 40% of the homes are destroyed in one night. And the fire brigade ring the central control. And they say, just send every bloody engine you've got. The whole bloody world is on fire. And what kind of frightening message must that have been to, uh, uh, to hear? But the Blitz was actually predicted 50 years before by a a man called George Chetwin Griffiths... in the the book called The Angel of the Revolution in 1893. And in it, he predicts a a world war breaking out... where uh, Britain's allies, the Germans, are defeated by the Russians. And the Russians then invade Britain with their French allies. Uh, So the French set up their artillery on the North Downs... and the uh, Russians occupy Alexander Palace... And there they have a fleet of warcraft that fly through the air, dropping bombs on Londoners. A particularly graphic description, and if we've got time, I'll read that to you now. Within the besieged area, martial law prevailed universally. Riots were of daily, almost hourly occurrence, but they were repressed with an iron hand, and the rioters were shot down in the streets without mercy. Though siege and famine were bad enough, anarchy breaking out amidst the vast sweltering mass of human beings would have been a thousand times worse. And so the King, who assisted by the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Council, had assumed control of the whole city, had directed that order was to be maintained at any price. The remains of the army were quartered in the parks under canvas and billeted in houses throughout the various districts in order to support the police in repressing disorder and protecting property. Still, in spite of all that could be done, matters were rapidly coming to a terrible pass. In a week at the latest, the horses of the cavalry would be eaten. For a fortnight, London had almost lived upon horseflesh. In the poorer quarters, there was not a dog to be seen, and a sewer rat was considered delicacy. But famine was by no means the only horror that afflicted London during those awful days and nights. All around the heights, the booming of cannon sounded incessantly. Huge shells went screaming through the air overhead to fall and burst amidst some swarming hive of humanity scattering death and mutilation where they fell. And high up in the air, the fleet of enemy aerostats perpetually circled, dropping their fire shells and blasting cartridges on the dense masses of houses until a hundred conflagrations were raging at once in different parts of the city. Well, things are looking pretty tough for London in the novel with this bombardment going on, but help is at hand. There's a fleet of aircraft manned by female anarchists who come... And th- <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> and they take on the Russian Imperial Air Force and defeat it in the air with the help of the death ray designed by this dashing young British engineer. And the enemy is defeated, and then an army from socialist America comes over, and uh, this army of trade union workers comes and defeats the French and Russian and forces them away from Britain and Britain then becomes a socialist utopia and uh, the royal family are, are sent into exile so London is saved in the end but... Call, call
0: me cynical but I think the author had an angle
2: <laughs> It's very much an angle, yeah yeah. I, mean, I think he's trying to put, make a political point here um, <laughs> but uh, although the political scenario doesn't seem very likely the description of the aircraft are a bit unusual. Uh, one of the, the crew is injured by a Russian bullet and they say well just drag him back to one of the bedrooms and there give him a bottle of champagne and some brandy and although uh, aircraft were quite a, a primitive state there, I think it was a long time before they were a bit large enough to uh, have bedrooms and room for champagne on board. It's
0: actual champagne socialism going on.
2: Yeah I guess that's right They were actually planning though for air war quite a long time before that, the uh, American inventor, Hiram Maxim, was uh, he was an inventor and he came, comes to Europe. Do we, do we know him for a gun of some sort? That's right, he's mostly named for the machine gun, uh, but before that he was working on the idea of um, trying to build a new way of Europeans killing themselves, because he was told that was the way to really make money. Yeah,
0: turn of the century, that was big business, wasn't it?
2: Uh, so he's, he's planning on a flying machine that can drop bombs. The only trouble is when he's working on it in the 1890s, the, they still haven't got their combustion engine sufficiently powerful enough to make a, a plane like that fly. So uh, he has to scrap the plans and then he goes to work on his uh, machine gun. He, has, he develops a machine gun in his house down in Norwood. There he sets one up in his uh, garden and sort of keeps testing it there. He must have been the ultimate nuisance neighbour. <laughs>
0: I've done this walk quite a few times, but the brightness of the day has alerted me to the enormous golden bird on top of an orb atop a column on the embankment there, just opposite the soon-to-be-toppled London Eye. (laughs) What is this bird?
2: Uh, This is the RF uh, memorial. You can see the uh, Ad Astra, that's the uh, Uh, RF monster, and it's just outside what is now the Ministry of Defence, was the Ministry of War. And uh, that's in another novel where London is destroyed. Well, we talked about that earlier in Richard Doyle's novel, but it seems a favourite building, actually, to destroy. This gets destroyed in the 1978 book um, by General Sir John Hackett, uh, called the Third World War in 1985. And Hackett's... Um, well, he's a real war- World War II hero. I mean, he's wounded at the uh, Battle of Arnhem. And then he becomes part of the NATO chief of staff during the 50s and 60s. But by the 70s he's starting to get sidelined and his reports are a bit ignored and uh, he's really concerned about the Russian strength in uh, weaponry so he thinks that uh, Britain's getting too weak. So he writes this book in which a third world war takes place and the Russians start bombing London and uh, one of the first buildings he makes sure is destroyed is the Ministry of Defence. Uh, I'm pretty sure that he's trying to get revenge on London there. Um, I wonder what he'd make
0: of the present political climate.
2: Well, I don't know. might see it as a vindication. It's always
0: possible. I think there are some people who really, you know, made a living out of the Cold War. And- well, there was a lot of talk of bombs raining down and uh, nuclear fallout and all that stuff in the early 80s, wasn't there? Uh, absolutely, so yeah. We, we yeah. seem to be a lot more casual about the prospect of going to war with Russia. It's funny,
2: uh, I mean, I grew up with that, and... Uh, I remember in our GCSE mock French, my friend Simon Thompson saying there was absolutely no point revising for this exam because World War III will break out before it happens, and it's just, uh, it's just a waste of time. Well, I'm kind of glad I did revise, but that was the kind of thinking we had. I remember a school assembly where uh, it was built as a sort of normal assembly, and then one of the RE teachers came rushing in and said... Oh, have you heard the news? The missiles are on the way. We've got three minutes to live. And this was caused a little bit of alarm. But I couldn't help thinking, how is an RE teacher at a secondary school sort of in the NATO sort of warning chain?
0: Well, maybe they've got a direct line to somebody even further up the chain.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's very possible, yeah. Sounds yeah. like,
0: like a recruiting drive yeah, to me. Yeah,
2: it could be, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that was the plan. We were all meant to think, oh, we've only got three minutes to live. we better start to uh, repent. But that, that, that really fits in with another reading. Oh, we might be better at reading it before we get too close.
0: Well, no, we've got London going on around us, yes. The tiresome drilling noise in the background is three men on a boat. Not that sort of three men on a boat, not (laughs) Jerome K. Jerome. Seemingly uh, drilling into the side of the boat, the Tattershaw Castle. I don't know if they're authorised to do that, but they're very busy. (laughs) And they're very noisy, so we'll stop here and and hear this reading. Which is from?
2: This is from a book by James Herbert, horror writer, but he fits in with the time. It's written in 1984 when there was this fear of nuclear destruction. Uh, Just as an aside, if you've been watching the old Top of the Pops reruns from 1981-82 every other song has a sort of thing about we're all going to die in nuclear war so it was definitely something that was uh, a conscience into people's minds and so he decides to have a scenario where a nuclear strike hits London and uh, he writes about where we're standing now. Well, right here. Yeah. Well,
0: Now I I want to move quickly.
2: (laughs) Below the wide roadway, curving slightly with the river, was jammed with scorched, immobile traffic. Another road, equally wide, veered off to the right towards Trafalgar Square. The mist was minimal now, but Nelson's column could not be seen. Victoria Embankment, running alongside the Thames, was relatively free of debris, apart from vehicles, but the offices on the north side have been set back from the thoroughfare gardens and lawns in between. As expected, the buildings were no more than crushed ruins. The Ministry of Defence, all was gone. The Admiralty in the beginning of the Mall should have been visible since nothing obscured the view, but of course that had vanished too. He briefly wondered if all the works of art in the National Gallery, which was on the far side of Trafalgar Square, had been destroyed. What significance do they have in the present world anyway? As he knew they would be, the Houses of Parliament and Westminster Abbey at the end of the road he faced had been totally destroyed. Peculiarly, the lower section of the tower housing Big Ben was still erect, sheared off at 100 or so feet. The top section containing the clock face protruded from the river like a tilted rock island. And again, surprisingly, only the southern end of Westminster Bridge had collapsed. It defiantly spanned the river, just failing to reach the opposite bank. The sun's fierce rays sucked up moisture from the Thames, so it looked as if the water was boiling. Somehow, it appeared to him that there were the intestines.
0: It's that time of the year.
2: Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel
0: the warm breeze, relax,
2: and think about
0: work.
1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
2: The city's torn body exposed to the light, and still steaming as all life gradually diminished. Masts of sunken ancient boats, those that have been converted into smart bars and restaurants, jutted through the rolling mist. Pleasure boats, their surfaces and passengers charred black, drifted listlessly with the current. The longboat funeral pyres of a modern age. A stout wall, still unbroken, lined the riverbank, and the waterline was high, lapping over the small quay sides that were situated near the broken bridge. Much of the gardens on the other side of the road from the embankment wall were buried beneath fallen office blocks, but here and there a tree struck through the debris, protected from the worst of the blast by the very buildings shattered around them. Leaves washed clear of dust by the constant rain and flourishing under the humid conditions. Culver's eyes moistened at the sight. Culver is a man who's, who knows the location of an underground control room which is just underneath uh, Hungerford Bridge. And he thinks if he can get there, he can uh, get to the, whoever's in charge of London during the catastrophe. But when he opens the door, he finds not a control room functioning, but a room that's infested with huge radioactive rats.
0: Oh, that's awful when that happens.
2: <laughs> so then the story becomes a, a battle of human versus giant rat.
0: Well, I'm glad we're not on radio, because if somebody had tuned in halfway through that, they might have thought it was the travel
1: news.
0: (laughs) Not worth going into work today. It just struck me that the challenges uh, afforded somebody describing a destroyed London are very different from the filmic possibilities, aren't they, where you can put a charred and smoking landscape up in about one second, and you, you can immediately take it all in. But the linearity of setting it out in text means you've got to deal with item by item. It's a
2: matter of uh, picking the everyday items and, and making sure that people are shocked by those and then picking some of the big landscapes and you have to have to really like, make an impact so this is I think why the Ministry of Defence and Big Ben are, are favourites to get destroyed.
0: We are passing the more restaurant boats now, the, the RS Hispaniola to our right Rats, the thing that spread
2: the Great Plague in uh, 1665, and Plague has been a real threat to London. In fact, it's the thing that comes very closest to wiping out London. In uh, 664 AD, there's a case of Plague, which almost finishes off the uh, sort of Saxon settlements of London. Is with. that right? Yeah, it's, it's probably the, the closest we've come to completely wiping the city out. And what's the evidence for that? That's from things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that we got descriptions of that. So that will have been
0: a very brief note. Yes, yeah. They did not tend to go into much detail. Yeah,
2: they but... don't tend to much go into much detail. Actually, we'll walk this way now, uh, so we're going to leave the river.
0: Crossing the road here, just shy of Hungerford Bridge.
2: Then we have the uh, um, Black Death, which is, again, uh, very severe. I mean, we estimate about a third of London's population wiped out in the Black Death. And then 1665 plague, 100,000 people killed in that.
0: Although, Do, do we know what
2: the population of town was? We think it was around 400,000 at that stage. So we're talking about a quarter of the population. Not as bad in terms of uh, percentage-wise as the black, uh, black Death. But on impact in London, it's pretty substantial because not only are people uh, dying, but they even also leave London. This means London is almost in a deserted state. We've got Samuel Pepys' fantastic accounts of the great Plague, but he talks about walking through the streets of London and being so quiet that you can hear the sound of the water wheel on London Bridge turning, even though he's a couple of streets away, and grass growing in streets like Cornhill. So there's an eerie, abandoned feel to it. And uh, this, I think, informs Mary Shelley's book, uh, The Last Man, where she predicts a worldwide plague which wipes out all of humanity. And she has some travellers that travel to London and then walk through the the abandoned uh, scene.
0: Much as we're doing now, except for the abandoned bit. Yeah. (laughs) That crucial detail. It makes me smile when people look to Daniel Defoe for an authentic account of the plague. Is it uh, Journal of a Plague yet? And if I remember correctly, I don't think he was alive he was about
2: uh, four years old when it was ripped, right. uh, when the yes. plague struck. But uh, he um, he was a real plague enthusiast, if that's the right word, and collected all are the... You, are you a
0: plague enthusiast?
2: Well, I, I do actually do a walk about the Journal of the Plague here. I'll okay. be doing that uh, as part of the Literary Footprints Festival. Uh, and it's a really amazing account. Because although it isn't obviously a first-hand account, you wouldn't really know that from reading it. And the, the writing is so powerful and so evocative and uh, it can really uh, just prompt real emotions in people 350 years after the great plague so we're worrying about the poor woman whose child's died and the people in houses who've been forced to have their doors shut in and the whole family then more or less condemned to catching plague from someone else in the house Uh, so yeah, really great book but not not a first hand account
0: We're in Northumberland Avenue now which, as we know, is worth £160.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was always a strange one, really. I, I never really saw this as a sort of mid-range street, even in the 1930s. So we're going to walk up towards Charing Cross in uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Charing Cross has become the Charing Tea Tower. Um, in the book, the eye Christianity has been replaced by a worship of mass production. So... Uh, henry ford is seen as a sort of god and the model t is a sort of uh, an example of sort of a thing to name buildings from so uh, it's instead of charing cross it's charing t and there's a large tower which has sort of auto gyros which people take off from and then fly over london
0: that's that's very clever taking the top off a crucifix to give you a new religious symbol
2: yeah yeah so it's a, it's a really great book Aldous Huxley uh, was very uh, proud of his uh, sort of depiction of future London and I think he was uh, not so impressed when George Orwell writes 1984 much later on and he almost sort of dams 1984 with faint praise saying Orwell has done a very good job.
0: (laughs) That sounds like literary envy to me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it does a little bit.
0: Now, I can't remember. What do we have in, uh, in 1984 that would help us here?
2: Well, uh, we'll get to that shortly because ah. we're going to get to um, St Martin's in the Field Church. So we'll stand on the steps and read the description from there.
0: Sounds good, but for now we're heading up towards the Strand.
2: Yeah, we're heading up towards the Strand. Um, another of my favourite uh, dystopian uh, stories is there's a poem by the poet Anna Barbold called 1811. Uh, she writes in 1812 actually, and the poem is depicting. Some visitors to London in 1911 after a hundred years of European wars has reduced all the empires in Europe to just ghosts, really. And the visitors visit London and they see the Thames silted up and covered with reeds and where there were once ships trading there's just now abandoned hulks. They walk up to look at all the fine monuments in London. So they see uh, monuments to... All well, the great people like Nelson, but they're all just eroded and worn away, as if it was now uh, we were walking through ancient Greece. And this is her prediction, really, that London has no future if the wars continue and the European powers will, in a hundred years, whiten themselves out. And, you know, she's pretty good with the timing there. Uh, hundred years later, in World War One.
0: Sorry, we're now coming up to the Strand. Um, and, and indeed are on the Strand and to our left. Now says them Resplendent again in the summer. This is a good day for seeing London. It
2: is, yeah, it's brilliant, yeah. Well, we talked about The Angel of the Revolution, and that was a very popular book in 1893. Uh, so there's another man who tries to cash in on the of that man called William Le Quo. Um, he built, writes a book called The Poison Bullet, which is part of a set of stories uh, which is depicts london again being invaded by the french and uh, the french set up their artillery on the north downs and start pounding london he's got a very different agenda to Chetwynd griffiths it's not a left-wing political thing he's really basically says we need more money for the army and navy but his depiction of the strand is a really frightening one and i think having seen the really p- terrible pictures you've seen from wars in syria of Destructions of Streets it all kind of rings true uh, his description so I'll read that now The burning of Babylon was a sight of awful appalling grandeur looking from Charing Cross the strand seemed one huge glaring furnace flames belched from the windows on either side and bursting through the roofs great tongues of fire shot upwards, blazing timbers fell into the street and as the buildings became gutted and the fury of the devouring element was spent Shattered walls tottered and fell into the roadway. The terrific heat, the roar of the flames, the blinding smoke, the stifling fumes of the dynamite, the pungent poisonous colour of the melanite, the clouds of dust, the splinters of stone and steel, and the constant bursting of shells combined to render the scene the most awful ever witnessed in a single thoroughfare during the history of the world. The disasters wrought by the Frenchman's improved long-range weapons were terrible, London, the all-powerful metropolis which had egotistically considered herself the impregnable citadel of the world, fell to pieces and was consumed. She was frozen by terror and lifeless. Her ancient monuments were swept away, her wealth melted in her coffers, her priceless objects of art were torn up and broken, and her streets ran with the blood of her starving toilers.
0: God to say, that that amongst the excerpts that you've read out seem to me to capture the essence of being in the middle of a war. It's, it's hard to imagine this guy didn't witness the bullets.
2: Yeah, it's, he was a journalist, so it's very possible he might have been involved in the Siege of Paris, uh, where the Prussians surrounded the city and uh, fired their weapons into the city, so he may have known something about it. But there is definitely a, uh, an agenda of we need more uh, guns for the Royal Navy in the in the
0: description with an, uh, having an interest in these sort of things, how do you think we are uh, shaping up militarily currently?
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I don't really think we'd, anyone from the 1900s would recognise the British Navy now, although I suppose we've got the nuclear submarines, which are, would have far more firepower than a, a dreadnought on them. Yeah, we seem to have some of the fancy stuff, don't we? Yeah, yeah, all the I'm stuff sure that's never going to get used, Yeah, but not really the stuff you actually practically need. Um, one of my uh, nephews in the Royal Navy and he was in a minesweeper and uh, said he was surrounded by Iranian gunboats and they all uh, he just thought if one person slips on the trigger here we're just going to get shot to pieces because they
0: outgun us about ten to one which is a little bit frightening difficult not to keep descending into great big troughs of doom yeah, on this tour. Yeah, and yeah. I apologise, but uh, towards Charing Cross we go. So
2: um, these books start to create a genre called invasion fiction, and there are an awful lot of them that predict invasion of Britain in one way or another. But they're really the masterpiece of invasion fiction. doesn't predict the French, the Russians, or anyone else invading. Uh, it's got to be aliens. Yeah, it's H.G. Uh, Wells' War of the Worlds, which is written five years after. H.G. Wells has a real masterstroke here. The idea that humans are not the supreme species and and there is going to be something else which can prey on us. And this is a really new twist in fiction. No one seems to have thought of this idea uh, before in uh, such a large scale. And I think uh, Wells was a real fan of Darwin... Which at the time was still quite a controversial idea. He's all like trying to push this a uh, Darwinian uh, agenda by saying that so humans might not be at the top of the food chain. But in War of the Worlds, it's not actually the British Navy or the, an army of airships or anything like that that saves uh, London, it's the uh, microbes, the common coal. The uh, Martians don't have any resistance to it, and they bring the Martians to their knees. And I think, again, that's another thing that sets it apart as a work of uh, invasion fiction, the idea that it's not even humans who are able to solve
0: their own problems here. When did you say it was written? Uh, That's 1898. Uh, So we haven't even gotten to the serious flu pandemics of the early 20th century? No,
2: no, that's true. I mean, it's kind of a precursor to that, although obviously we'd have pandemics of some other kinds.
0: I find that so astonishing that the origin of species and War of the Worlds could be so close together.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a remarkable set of ideas, isn't it? Right, we'll go and stand on the steps here.
0: Uh, we've just emerged into Trafalgar Square where there's a, uh, a very appealing uh, Caravaggio exhibition in prospect there at the National. Uh, we're heading up the steps of St Martin in the Fields. Does this building have particular significance
2: well in the story uh, 1984 by george orwell one of the things that connects him with the past this past that's sort of so difficult to get at because the past is permanently altering but he hears this old rhyme this old nursery rhyme oranges and lemons say the bells of saint clemens you owe me three farthings, say the bells of saint martin's there now that's as far as i can get the old shopkeeper says farthing that was a small copper coin it looked something like a sen. where was st Martin's? said winston oh st martin's that's still standing it's in victory square alongside the picture gallery a building with a kind of triangular porch and pillars in front and a big flight of steps winston knew the place well it was a museum used for propaganda displays of various kinds scale models of rocket bombs and floating fortresses Waxwork tableau illustrating enemy atrocities and the like. Some Martin's in the Field, it used to be called, supplemented the old man, though I don't rec- recollect any fields anywhere in those parts. So uh, Orwell has transformed Trafalgar Square into Victory Square, and they talk about a huge column with a statue of Big Brother at the top, and uh, this commemorates Big Brother's victory in the Battle of Airstrip 1. And then he talks about crowds gathering here in front of a video screen to watch uh, propaganda films. And then a, a troop of captured Eurasian prisoners paraded around in trucks around and jeered at and objects thrown at them. And it's a really masterful description where he's transformed a place we all know, and whether we love it or not, we all know it very well, into a place which is really quite frightening and the vision of St. Martin's in the Fields as well as a sort of propaganda place where militaristic uh, exhibitions are shown. I think it's another good good transformation of London. And it's
0: not too much of a nudge either, is it?
2: No, and it's interesting. I wonder if they even had to do anything with the statue at the top, because you could just rename it and say it's a statue of someone else, yeah, and people would well take believe Take it. the
0: hat off, draw a moustache on.
2: Well, we, as guides, we often get asked who's at the top, and people
0: go, oh, is really? it Napoleon. Given that we've got a statue to Boudicca, it's not such a yeah, stretch. It's that's not
2: out of the question, is it? And a lot of people have said, oh, Nelson's, uh, is that Nelson Mandela at the top, then?
0: <laughs> Can I use your eye just on the on the column there? Does that not look to you like it's leaning slightly to the left?
2: Yeah, I think you might be right from
0: here. Although, I don't think these steps are that even. Oh, so. maybe we're leaning to the <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. OK, we'll carry on this way.
0: Now, if I was interviewing somebody about uh, your favourite Victorian murderer, I would possibly, at some point in the interview, feel inclined to suggest that there was an unhealthy appetite for salacious murder and a bit of bloodthirstiness going on. Um, On your part, I I feel it would be unfair if I didn't suggest that.
2: I I don't really think it's bloodthirstiness. I hope it doesn't come across that way. What I'm, I'm... more interested in is the idea of the shock of like systems collapsing and uh, the shock of sort of being in a situation you don't know i think that's what fascinates me more than the blood and gore but <laughs> maybe maybe a bit of psychological analysis might prove otherwise
0: i suppose there's that question isn't there given that we're all primed to look out for suspect packages and everybody's nervous about where the next problem might come from absolutely uh, new york paris here
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a constant thing that we need to be aware of, and I think that's a real great shame. I mean, the city should be an open place that people can enjoy, but nonetheless,
0: we're we're all very vulnerable here. Something big going on at the National Portrait Gallery Yeah, I think
2: they might might be opening up their new exhibition. It looks like a a crowd ready for an opening day. 11 o'clock opening time, so, yeah, also people get making the most of the gallery. One of the books that really first it struck me, I think I read it when I was about 8 years old, it was the Day of the Triffids and the plot in that is that uh, everyone around the world has seen these blinding flashes in the sky and then they wake up and anyone who's seen them has gone completely blind and this uh, this leads to sort of a breakdown of the city because uh, it's well, not really geared up for people who, are where everyone is blind the other problem they have is it leads to an escape of these carnivorous plants which can move around called triffids. And they've been harvested by mankind for their oil for a long time. But now, with the humans blind, the triffids are the masters. And in it, uh, the author John Wyndham describes people moving out of London, setting up their own self-contained communities, where they actually have to do things like generate their own power and look after their own sanitary needs and sort of grow their own food. All these things that, as city dwellers, we just don't have to worry about because someone else does it. And I think that's another challenge in the dystopian novel is always how would you actually cope to survive without this integrated world.
0: I think this has is, this is set the prototype for The Walking Dead quite nicely.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. And Wyndham sort of uh, is writing in the 1950s and it's almost a precursor to the hippie movement of the 60s with people moving out of London and setting up their own self-contained villages and in, at the end of the book the protagonist in the book says well, when I returned to London to see all the ruin that it was in it just depressed me and I realised that uh, London had all my life it had just been frustrating to me and I hadn't had a chance to exercise my potential so well after this disaster releasing me from the city um, I'd finally become the sort of full human being I don't really go with that view. I mean, we're meant to be social people, but it is a view that comes across in a lot of novels. Even going back to Daniel Defoe in uh, Robinson Crusoe, where he sees that all society's ills have come from living in a city, and once he's released from that, then... uh,
0: he's a much better person. Yeah, just harking back to the plague year, I seem to remember that the diverse reactions to plague, uh, including religion and superstition and quackery and outright fear and uh, bravado of various sorts, it was it was all about the carnival of reactions to adversity that, that uh, really seemed like the, the most interesting part of it. Yeah. Yeah, where, absolutely, where do you find yeah. the humanity yeah, in the disaster? Yeah, I, I,
2: I think that's true. I and mean, uh, the bit where he's talking about um, how... Uh, people almost go into a state of paranoia in a journal of the plague year is one of the sort of uh, things that's really exciting. And uh, the idea that people will turn to any sort of crazy cure, even drinking mercury, and th- loads of people die from actually the sort of quack medicine they're given against the plague. It's a really, really interesting
0: idea. Well, we're, we're loitering around the back of... Uh if we want cheap tickets for stomp, then we're in the ideal <laughs> spot. Uh, but I suspect we're not here for that.
2: Yeah, we've come to Leicester Square. There's its great spots in J.G. Ballard's uh, 1962 book, The Drowned World. And Ballard, is writing a long time before the idea of global warming is coming in. But in this scenario, the Earth has rapidly heated up to a new climate. And uh, the tropics are just uninhabitable. The only place people safely live is around the poles. And the sea levels have risen to the point where London is completely submerged and all that remains are the buildings that poke out the top of it. So some scientists are sent to investigate and uh, one of them makes his home in the top floor of the Ritz Hotel, which at that time looks out across Green Park. Well, Green Park has now just become a huge crocodile-infested lagoon with some other buildings on the far side which are part of like a reef that has formed. Well the scientists investigate what's going on including sending a diving bell down to one of the cinemas in the West End and they investigate it there. Uh, But then some pirates come along and their plan is to create a sort of artificial wall around the West End of London and drain the water out so that they can get down and then recover all the treasure from the lost underwater city of London. Uh, So I'll read the description here. Alan, look for heaven's sake Beatrice, can you see Karen's kicked back his chair and leapt to the rail, pointing down in amazement at the water. The level is going down. Looming just below the dark, pellucid surface were the dim, rectangular outlines of the submerged buildings, their open windows like empty eyes in enormous drowned skulls. Only a few feet from the surface, they drew closer, emerging from the depths like an immense, intact Atlantis first a dozen then a score of buildings appeared to view their cornices and fire escapes clearly visible through the thinning refracting glass of the water most of them were only four or five stories high part of a district of small shops and offices enclosed by the taller buildings that had formed the perimeter of the lagoon 50 yards away the first of the roofs broke surface a blunted rectangle smothered with weeds and algae across which slithered a few desperate fish immediately half a dozen others appeared around it already roughly delineating a narrow street the upper line of windows emerged water spilling from their ledges fucus draped from the straggling wires that sagged across the roadways already the lagoon had vanished as they sank slowly downwards settling into what seemed to be a large open square they were now looking across a diffuse straggle of rooftops punctuated by eroded chimneys and spires, the flat sheet of the surface transformed into a jungle of cubist blocks at its boundaries, emerging into the higher ground of the enveloping vegetation. What remained of the water had formed into a distinct channels, dark and sombre, eddying away around corners and into na- narrow alleyways. Robert, stop it, it's horrible, Karen's felt Beatrice seize his arm, her long blue nails biting through the fabric of his dinner jacket. She gazed out at the emerging city, an expression of revulsion on her tense face, physically repelled by the sharp, acrid smells of the exposed water weeds and algae. The damp barnacle forms of rusting litter, veils of scum draped from the crisscrossing telegraph wires and tilting neon signs, and a thin coating of silk cloaked the faces of the buildings, turning the once limpid beauty of the underwater city into a drained and festering sewer. He gazed out brightly at the emerging streets in the dim light around them, the humpbacks of cars and buses appearing through the surface. Giant anemones and starfish flopped limply in the shallows, collapsing kelp straggled out of the windows. Numbly, Bodkin said, It's Leicester Square. Now, I think uh, it's interesting because all the descriptions we've had, most of the people would say... they were horrified by the idea of London being destroyed. But J.G. Ballard seems actually horrified by London coming back again.
0: I'm, I'm horrified by Leicester Square not being destroyed. <laughs> I, I haven't been here for a while, and uh, it seems that some of my favourite buildings have been knocked down entirely. Yeah, yeah. And, and over there, we've got a thing called M&M's World.
2: That's the, the strangest that? thing, yeah. What is it? Yeah. It's, um, it's an attraction where you can buy lots of M&M's, basically. <laughs> I mean, what kind of, what says more about London than M&M's? Well, quite so. I'm I mean, why, why, surely it would be Smarties World if we had any sense.
0: And I have no uh, ill feeling towards M&M's. I'm sure their product and, their, and corporation are a delight, but uh, seriously, let's describe. It is a
2: strange thing, and it is strange that it's so on the tourist trail. I've seen a lot of people um, coming, coming away, clutching at bags of M&M's, as if they weren't for sale in the place they'd left before they came here.
0: Well, I suppose I've just realised, of course, you've got the cinemas here and we know we like to go in with buckets of uh, of, of nush, don't we?
2: Possibly. The uh, number of cinemas is dropping and the number of well, the amount of M&M's world has gone up so...
0: Come friendly waters and fall on (laughs) those Square.
2: Well, we need to get revenge and we should open a Greg's world in Paris so that people can go and get pasties and have their
0: photos taken with them Weirdly, in amongst all of these depictions of Apocalypse, I think you've just managed to put the icing on the cake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We need to come to a close, uh, just because time says so. You're doing this tour in full, the the two-hour version pretty soon.
2: Yeah, that's right. We'll be doing it as part of the Literary Footprints Festival. So uh, if you come along to our website, footprintsoflondon.com, look for the Literary Festival link, and you can see all the dates we're doing it then. And there's some really great events and we've got a fantastic offer you pay 40 quid and you can get a season ticket and go on up to 40 walks all about literature in London 40? yeah, yeah. so uh, one every day well more than one every day throughout October and it becomes really kind of like a, a book club out on the street so you'll get to chat with the other people on the wall and I love the idea that so the books all meshed together. So on my walk, we'll cross over the route taken by Mrs. Dalloway in in Virginia Woolf's classic novel. So you'll see London from a totally different angle on the same spot.
0: Superb. Watch out for iron railings. <laughs> yeah. um, for, for today, though, from uh, Leicester Square and in the shadow of Eminem's world, Rob Smith. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Nice
1: meeting.
0: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Rob Smith. Thanks, too, to Tina Baxter and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Quentin Wolfe.